What's on the cards for European fundraising post-pandemic? Will debut funds and smaller managers be able to secure airtime with overwhelmed LPs? And how can placement agents evolve to this ever-changing market? We discuss all this and more with our guest Adam Turtle from Reed Partners in this latest episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome to this new episode of the Unquote Private Equity Podcast. I'm Greg Gilles, the editor of Unquote, and we are back for another In Conversation With episode, where we bring you more in-depth interviews with leading market participants. We had the pleasure of welcoming IQ Capital's Kerry Baldwin on our previous episode in the series to discuss a range of topics from venture in the UK to the public image of private equity. Uh, we're going to change tack a little bit on this one by having a chat with an expert from the advisory community, and we'll most likely talk a lot more about fundraising. My guest today has 20 years of PE fundraising experience, leading on more than 50 fundraisers to help GPs raise more than 60 billion euros of capital. He spent seven years at Credit Suisse in the private funds group before becoming director of fundraising at Actis. And then in 2011, before the age of 40, co-founded what has become one of the main placement agents and fund advisory businesses here in Europe, Reed Partners. Last but not least, uh, he has served as a judge on the panel of the Uncle British Private Equity Awards. It's my pleasure to welcome Reed co-founder and partner Adam Turtle to the podcast. Adam, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us uh, fresh back from holiday. That's uh, very much uh, okay. Greg, good to, good to speak to you. Um, and you caught me on a good day because I have just come back from holiday, so I'm feeling very relaxed. Perfect. Uh, ready, ready to talk about business and then work. <laughs> exactly. I haven't talked about business that much for the last 10 days, so uh, good time to start. And I think a, a good place to start is is the fact that Reed is, is turning 10 this year, uh, quite quite the milestone. And so maybe from that first meeting in a, in a beer garden with Scott to, to now, what's your take on the firm's journey and, and more widely, how much has the, the placement agent space itself evolved in that time? Yeah, it's... Uh... Uh, it, it is it is quite a milestone. Uh, I'm not sure we were in a beer garden. I think um, you know those were in the days where you could meet inside pubs, and uh, it was winter. I remember, so uh, it, we, we weren't able to drink outside. Um, um, but it is, uh, yeah, it has been sort of. It's, it's an important year for us this year because of our ten years, and that does. I, I don't think as a firm we generally spend an awful lot of time looking backwards. I think we spend most of our time looking forwards. Um, and worrying about the next problem, um, but it is nice to sort of step back and sort of remember what what, what you've kind of achieved um, over that time. Um, you know, in my intro, I guess you know, one thing you you managed to uh, to do is make me feel a bit old, which uh, which is something I've had to come to terms with. Um, but actually, I was I was thirty when we set Read Up, so I was, uh, which in also in retrospect seems a little bit crazy that we try and do something so naive. It was even, uh, it, you've already had to be a little naive to do that um even crazier for scott to team up with me in, in, in so doing um but i think obviously where we, where the firm is today um we're uh, very pleased about how how things have evolved um you know it, it it's been a truly entrepreneurial journey because uh, you know we were a true startup um we it kind of independently self-funded the business and and lived by our wits, if you like, and the clients we were able to achieve in terms of growing the firm. Um, and, uh, you know, to get to the point we are today, um, you know, I was struck. I was, we had uh, uh, an offsite with the firm uh, a few months ago. Now that you're allowed to do that, 
again um, and had everyone together. Uh, and I was struck um, by quite how many people we have, which uh, obviously um, I know, but just seeing everybody in a room together, um, you know, all 85 of us, well, some of us were on video link from the US because we couldn't quite achieve that logistical feat. But um, having uh, having so many people in the room, um, you know, that did really bring home quite how much we've grown as a firm. Um, uh, and that's obviously very uh, something we feel very, very good about. Um, but I think beyond that, um, you know, the clients that we've been able to secure, um, you know, and, and, and the repeat business from those clients has been something that, that we're very proud of. And I guess that being a bit of a slave for positive feedback, you know, what we've been very happy to achieve is, is getting good feedback from our clients, which has then led to us being able to work with them again and work with other clients. And, um, you know, really that, which is, sounds quite simple, but is actually, uh, you know, the holy grail for a firm like mine um, has been extremely rewarding. Um, I think we've been able to do it because although I was a young 30-year-old when we, when we set the firm up, um, I think we had the right idea about what, what service offering to, to, to deliver. Um, and and that, that service offering was a bit different and um, could perhaps, I mean, disrupt is a big word, but I think we, we did see an opportunity to, to, to sort of upend the status quo in terms of what the expectations were for what an advisor could provide in this segment um, and you know, offer a more sort of strategic, thoughtful, long-term approach to our clients. Um, and what's been fabulous is to see how that has we were both right in that respect um that that was able to secure us clients and probably more importantly deliver success for those clients and create the virtuous cycle that that, that hopefully we're we're seeing at, at the moment um so that's been uh yeah that's been fabulous um yeah i think yeah we're very proud of of all of our client relationships i think we're we're, we're also quite proud of been involved not only in launching our own firm but launching some new firms into the market um you know we we recently closed a fund for gho capital which was you know their third vintage uh, that they've raised and you know which we've worked with them on uh, you know we've raised um upwards of um four billion uh, for them now uh, and there are a number of other examples um and we you know it, it, there's nothing better than helping build firms in that respect um as well as helping develop a number of the more established groups we work with with new products and things like that. So all of that has been has been great. Um, I think perhaps more personally, um, it's been an amazing ride. Really, um, you know, it's certainly not been something which has been straightforward. People often say, you know, if you knew what it was going to be like before you launch, before you take on something entrepreneurial, you'd never do it. There's probably elements of that that is true. I think it's been uh, you know very stressful at times. Um, but we've always had a good ethos of kind of learning from our mistakes and we've made plenty of mistakes and, and improving on the back of it. And I think that still sits within the firm today. Um, and, you know, I think today sitting here, um, I personally feel, you know, kind of developed a lot and learned a lot of lessons for, about how best to, to build a business in this area. And I think probably in 10 years, I'll be saying the same thing about looking back upon myself now and thinking, gosh, you know, there are lots of things I didn't know then either. And I, so I think personally, it's been a, it's been a great it's been a great journey. Um, and, and overall, probably one thing. Final point is, you know, we set out when we launched the business because we observed that there still wasn't anybody in the market that had really cracked 
being that kind of go-to premium advisor that everyone sort of regarded well. And I'm not saying we've achieved that, but it feels like we've we've gone a long way towards um, achieving that so far. Um, and that's very rewarding, you know, because really that is the core of what we want to be. You know, we want to be regarded as delivering the best service and somebody that's an aspirational brand to work with and to work for and, and all of those things. And it feels like we've we've gone a long way towards achieving that, which was a big part of what we set out to do at the beginning. Yeah, and it's interesting because you, you mentioned as well that having that, that repeat business and, uh, and and sometimes even starting from the first fund and then you know being on on fund three for for, for some of these GPs, um, has the placement agent business become stickier? You think during that time, i.e., are people just um, tend to favor that that one brand? In which case, it becomes really important, as you said, to, to just be seen as that as that go to brand. People shop around still a little bit. What's been the the evolution of that that market? Um, it's, it's a good question. I actually, it's a little hard for me to say f- as relates to other groups because, you know, obviously I just see the f- read and what we do. Um, I, but my instinctive response is I actually don't think the placement industry has evolved that much um, over the last uh, 10 years. Um, I think that the sort of nature of the repeat business and the, long-term partnerships that we've been able to secure is a bit more of a factor of our business model than it is the placement industry itself. Because because we, we we continue to still take business away sometimes from our competitors. And, you know, frankly, private equity firms are used to shopping around for advisors. It's a standard part of how they deal with banks um, on the sponsor side all the time. So I think it's, it's more about the way that we do it. And, and, and I think that there's a couple aspects of that. One is, you know, I'm probably an unashamed um, sort of long-term relationship type person. And that's the way that we, the, the sort of culture we try to instill within the firm. Um, I mean, before, as you mentioned, before I was at Reed, you know, I've, I've done a couple of different roles, but one of those was working for a private equity firm. So I understand the kind of long-term nature of the capital formation side of this business. And, um, you know, that's what we try to bring to our relationships in all cases. But obviously, uh, those are nice words. The question is, how do you earn that right with the with your G, with your GP partners? Um, and I think the way that we uh, so you know, there are a variety of different ways that you can execute this business. But if it was to completely oversimplify, um, you know, there's maybe a, a traditional heavily distribution-oriented model where, where your real value add was just opening doors to LPs, um, which I still think the preponderance of the placement industry is, you know, that's probably the core of, of what people offer. Um, whereas our model is always thought to be a symbiosis of that, which is obviously extremely important, um, combined with a heavy strategic business development element. Um, and that is, um, you know, all about working with GPs and helping them um, think through the ways in which they can use the fundraising market to achieve their business development ends. Um, and, and I think it's through having that second piece that, that develops those longer-term relationships because it's not just about, okay, you, you know, you can um, introduce us to sort of investors, but you can also help us think through how we can launch a platform extension, how we might want to use the, the secondary market to, uh, to, to develop um, you know, our business 
um, you might help us with some IR-related issues that are very specific, um, event-specific to, to that particular GP. And that's really the way that we try to develop relationships with, with clients, which naturally then lends itself to deepening relationships over time. And that really has been the, the um, sort of nature of the relationships we've been able to develop um, as, a, as a result of that. But I, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true of the whole industry. Yeah, and and that makes sense in in the way that I think the GP community as well has has evolved. If we look at it the past ten years, um, and obviously we've seen uh, um, the the IR functions just becoming more and more uh, professionalized, integrated. Uh, but also, you you can clearly see with the way that they present themselves that they really have put a lot of thought into positioning, etc. Um, which would let me lead me to think that you know the the old kind of of oh, just being a rolodex as a, as a placement agent is maybe not quite there anymore because a lot of that they can probably do themselves is that part of what's feeding into your your strategy or your aim to become more and just to work in in partnership on these issues but and and how how has that evolution of the GP uh, kind of uh, model, how they, how, they be, how they behave and how they, they run their organization, has that changed your job massively in the past 10 years? Uh, yeah, I guess I'd probably approach it, answer that in a few ways. I think the first thing is, you know, when we set the firm up, um, you know, and we talked a lot about advisory, um, it was partly a recognition that, the, you know, the, the Rolodex and introduction and relationship service is extremely important. So I don't want to diminish that in any way um, because, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, again, we, we invest a lot of money and a lot of people and time in making sure we have, you know, the best, uh, the best relationships and the best, uh, you know, the best coverage people to cover the, the, the investors as, as we can. And we deliberately limit the number of things that we work on so that we can deliver a really excellent coverage service. But, but what, what I guess we observed was, whilst that piece was, was quite well covered by many groups, this, what was less thought through and, and certainly left less resources put to and less well valued, to be honest, in the industry was the bit which was, well, it's not just who you're selling to, but it's what you're selling. So how you, how you develop the story, um, you know, what we call the equity story for your offering and you know, what's the, uh, the, the differentiators that really resonate. And, 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 that's, and that's something that, you know, because of the nature of the industry, because investors are making these 10 year blind pool commitments, um, to their GPs, you know, there's a lot of um, trust and a lot of um, sort of nuance in, 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 in that sort of forward commitment that they're making, which, which means how you articulate yourself to that investor is very, very important, how you differentiate yourself from someone else. It's much less tangible than if it's investing in a company or a stock or a bond. So, that, so we, I, I think we always felt that that piece was underserved in the industry. And we, we, we immediately, you know, we, we, right from the beginning, we, we leaned heavily into that, and and I think that the your, as the market has become more competitive, both on a deal side and a fundraising side, um, GPs have all realised one way or the other that they uh, yeah they need to differentiate themselves. They need to double down on competitive advantages. We're no longer in a market which is empty shelves filling up. You know, it's 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 still growing, but it's very much um, a competitive market. And so I think that that. Most of the market has you know, gradually, in one way or another, come round to, to, to that way of thinking, um, and that remains a core differentiator. But I think the um, the other aspect, which has become really interesting over the last probably more the last five years, 
has been the development of GPs uh, or, or the, the, the sort of the spectrum of things that GPs can think about in developing their businesses has expanded pretty dramatically. This industry used to be a pretty vanilla industry. You know, it was you raise a 10 year fund every three to four to five years. Yeah, it's going to invest in a bit of everything across all sectors and yeah. Across all sectors or even, you know, over time people specialize a bit more, they develop sector focus and things like that. But, but they um, didn't, uh, but it was, you know, you'd, you had relations with investors, you might do a little bit of co-invest with them, but generally, you know, it was a relatively passive relationship. And I'd say over the last 10 years, but, in, but definitely over the last five years, you know, that has really changed with the development of GPs as quite sophisticated asset management businesses. And we're not just talking about Carlisle EQT, we're talking about smaller mid-market groups um, of all shapes and sizes. And yeah, that has led to you know, the proliferation of platform extensions. It's led to the development of GPs as businesses themselves, which they sell stakes in themselves. It's led to the development of the GP-led transactions market, where you can you know, do all sorts of things to maintain ownership of assets that you really like for longer. And, and that can ultimately become a big positive for investors who themselves are looking for transactional opportunities. So, and then there's obviously the co-investment growth, which has been dramatic and, and has become a complete staple part of the industry. So you throw all that together and the amount, the, the array of um, strategic things that GPs can think about um, is vast and, and, and it's made our job much more interesting. So when we talk about strategic these days, um, it's gone from just saying, well, we're going to help you really differentiate your equity story to market and create the most impressive pitch you can create, which is obviously part of our service. But it's also now even more developed into this, what will be your business development um, pathfinder to help you, um, you know, take, you know, maximize your franchise value in the, con in the context of all of these opportunities that frankly didn't exist 10 years ago. And that's, I think, really interesting. And it speaks a lot to, yeah, and, and clearly part of that increasing sophistication is the development of more built-out IR functions and um, you, you know, having internalized resource in order to develop relationships with investors. And for all and on all of that to us just really doubles down on, on what we always how we always distinguished ourselves, which is, you know, if your real single differentiating factor is we know these LPs and you don't, well, the growth of an IR team is going to be a, a threat to that because because you can they can develop those relationships themselves. Um, but if you're uh, if the nature of your uh, differentiation is more hooked around, you know, that overall strategic relationship, which is then sort of uh, facilitated through your relationships with investors. Um, well, actually, the, the, the increasing sophistication of GPs and the things you can do is actually a huge plus rather than a rather than a threat. Um, and it's, I mean, it, 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 yeah, if you look specifically at the IR question, I mean, a lot of our team, including myself, as you mentioned, have got experience working as IR team members. Um, and so, and if you look at our clients, Reed's clients, we have, you know, clients with no IR team, we have clients with very large double digit IR teams. But there are certain things that it's hard, even the best IR team will struggle to be able to be, a, they, they can't be a pluralist source of market knowledge because ultimately they they always they have to see the world through their firms firms eyes and that's what we can we can bring um and that 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 can be bringing market perspective knowledge that can be bringing you know maybe a sort of very 
honest, transparent perspective of what investors think about them. Um, uh, you know, that, yeah, that can bring those, yeah, those sorts of elements even to a very well-developed IR function. So, so, so for us, it, it, it's really, I wouldn't call it a, a threat or, or an issue. If anything, it's part of our differentiation. But I think to the old-fashioned placement model, it, it definitely is something that, that forces the market to evolve and, and, and develop. Switching uh, maybe to the, the the fundraising environment in in general, uh, there's obviously a lot of the themes that you've hit on so far that I think feed into that in terms of uh, platform development and specialization. Uh, but could you maybe give us an overview of, of where we stand right now after a pretty crazy sort of eighteen month, and but if anything, uh, perhaps a crazier sort of two three years before that, where we just so you know, allocations are skyrocket. Uh, and, and where do you see the market going in the next sort of six to 12 months? I mean, uh, I, I guess we're, we're, we're long-term bulls on privates in private markets in general, illiquids in general. And I think we, you know, we, we feel like that ownership structure you know, delivers our performance. And that's why investors are increasing allocations um, you know, to it, to it over time. And we think that that is a, a secular trend. And although, yes, you've seen growth in that segment going up to COVID and now rebound, uh, you know, in the, in the last sort of six months, you know, we also think it's, it's starting from a very low base. Um, and you know, if you look at the allocations to, to privates globally, it's I think still below 10%. And, you know, that means there's a vast cake to eat into. And I think that cake is going to continue to be eaten into over time. Um, so, uh, you know, which, which obviously is a big part of our longer term business model thinking. In terms of the, 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 the current perspective, um, I think that the, it's, it's been a dramatic last two years, obvious reasons. Um, it's been remarkable to see a business that was entirely conducted in person, move entirely virtual. And for that not to sort of massively disrupt things, which possibly also tells you that maybe in the future we can reduce some of the in-person elements of this because it's not that good for the planet. It's not that good for people's lifestyles either. Um, but um, the, uh, yeah, but the, the market after that kind of dramatic period just after COVID, where naturally everything sort of froze for a while. Um, and then I'd say a softer period at the second part of last year where people were still kind of looking around to figure out what was going to happen, but not, not a period that was dead, but just a period that was, was quieter. Um, it has really, really um, come back with a vengeance in this year. And, and we do uh, a, a sort of six monthly liquidity index that we, we kind of coined called the Read Liquidity Index. Um, and we, you know, we, we sort of tracked it over the last 18 months. And the numbers at the moment in terms of people increasing exposures to um, you know, looking to do more than they've done in the last six months, which is how the indices works, is, is higher than it's ever been at the moment. Um, so on the one hand, it's very robust. On the other hand, you know, it's funny, people repeat the same things endlessly. So it's kind of a bit boring, I apologize. But we've always talked about a bifurcated market. Well, COVID has made the market even more bifurcated. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, yeah, because people can't, because you can't meet in person, people are naturally uh, inclined towards doing things that are a bit less risky. They're more inclined towards doing re-ups than they are new investments. If they're going to do new investments, it's going to be um, with people that, 
they got a lot of comfort in you know one way or the other which tends towards slightly less risky propositions whether that be propositions with less stories to tell or newer propositions so uh, i think uh, yeah we're definitely seeing that um it's hot it's, it's accelerated certain trends uh, you know we've seen and we've been involved with some very successful platform extensions getting raised and i think part of that is because investors are saying well we want to increase our exposures to this segment but maybe we'll do it with managers that we know and trust already um so i think some of those some of those features i talked about before are, are actually being exacerbated um there's clearly sectoral bias in the way that people are deploying capital at the moment so um you know people are leaning heavily into things like technology healthcare um and another area that we've all of those areas we've been very involved in and another area that we actually started a business in uh, which is the whole impact sustainability area has become a major theme and we actually set up a business uh, nearly two years ago it was actually pre-covid um, and I've been very pleased to see how you know that has become a you know, has very quickly become a very mainstream segment of the market and, and something where we're seeing huge amounts of momentum and velocity at the moment so these um, so there's great sort of thematic drivers um, you know if you're within those segments However, if you're not, you know, if you're in the wrong part of the market or, you know, just got certain issues that you've encountered for perfectly understandable reasons, given COVID, um, you also see extremely challenging situations. And I mean, it would be the, the whole situation with Silverfleet was reported in the press. Yeah, you, it's not a case of a you know, rising tide flowing all boats at all. It, you know, there's some, if you have bad timing, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, it can be a very brutal market, I think, um, as, as well. So I think yeah, you'll probably see more examples like that um, as, as, as we go forward. So it's a very unusual, uh, you know, very unusual market in, in, in many respects. And how much of that would you say is, um, is um, topical or, you know, uh, temporary in, in, in a way uh, versus structural? Because as you said, we, there, there is that trend of just greater allocation to, to private capital, albeit from a lower base, but with a lot of room to grow. Does that mean that, you know, f- forevermore, LPs are just going to look at uh, just deploying bigger tickets in fewer managers to make it manageable for them, uh, less risky things? In other words, do you, do you think it's going to be a bit of an inflection point at some time where ah, maybe, you know, slightly riskier, small cap funds, newcomers, etc., cetera, uh, will be... We'll be facing less of a hurdle, especially once the, the sort of the impact of the pandemic is a bit more kind of integrated. I, I think that the there are certain aspects of the pandemic which make it particularly difficult and will go away. So you know the the whole. Um, I think it's it, it's important when you're making a ten year blind pool commitment to look someone in the eyes in person and see if you believe in them. And and uh, until that restarts again it will obviously be more tricky for, for, for younger groups although by the way not impossible because we've been working with newer groups um as well and we've been able to achieve success but it, it's it's just naturally it's naturally harder um there are certain things it's very hard to recreate on zoom uh, and that sort of gut conviction is is one of them um so so i do think some of those things will recede um uh, but at the same time i do think that gps yeah, yeah. What I don't think is going to change is I think that the trends towards specialization aren't going to aren't going to change. I think that that is just the evolution of private markets and private equity um, uh, within that to towards people with 
having to double down on competitive advantages, as I said before. And so I think you're going to see more and more and more of that. Um, I mean, in the US has had that for a long time. Europe's probably been a bit slower, but yeah, I think the aspect specialized GPs or GPs that specialize in certain things are going to become much, much more, you know, the, the, the standard and it will be harder and harder to, 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 to raise funds if you, if you can't point to those sorts of things. But again, that doesn't have to be sector specialization, but some form of specialization. Um, I also think that GPs are strengthening themselves um, through, uh, you know, through developing those clear brands for offering a certain capability. Um, and I think that that does mean that there, there may be less proliferation. I mean, we, we, we did a prediction uh, not that long ago that, that there may be a lot more money raised for private markets in general, but I'm not convinced there's going to be a huge increase in the number of private equity firms, which doesn't mean there won't be new private equity firms because the reality of this business is if you're a third or fourth quartile private equity firm, you may struggle to raise another fund. So there will continue to be creative destruction. There will definitely continue to be new firms getting raised, but the barriers to entry are probably higher than they were in the past. Um, it, you know, although it's never been particularly easy, by the way. And if you look at the numbers, even going into COVID, the numbers of newer groups getting raised was already going down, going into, going into, into COVID. And, and I think um, COVID probably will create some creative destruction that offers some new opportunity for, for, for new groups um, uh, as well. Um, so it's a bit of a mixed, bit of a mixed picture. Still possible to raise new funds, not easy, probably a bit harder. And yes, I do think you're going to see more proliferation of GPs as brands filling themselves out in different strategy segments and, and, and things like that. Um, yeah, for sure. But there will always be a place for entrepreneurial, you know, truly aligned, uh, you know, sort of people, groups of people backing themselves. There will always be a strong current of that within this industry. So I don't think that's going to go away. Um, and I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, one side of the fund advisory business has really come leaps and bounds uh, over the past decade, uh, which is secondaries. Uh, you've you mentioned uh, a few bits uh, around that already, but how, how busy have you been with that this year? After what I imagine was a much quieter market for much of 2020, uh, maybe not uh, even even more so than, than primary fundraisings? Yeah, so... so- really important area and, and i guess we've talked about it a bit already it's been part of the transformation of the asset class which um i think is quite um exciting really um the uh covid obviously no one knew how to price anything at that point um and uh, so you did see a bit of a freeze um but that freeze is kind of unfrozen with again fair vengeance and we're working on more deals at the moment um, than we ever have um and uh, you know, I think it's, again, it's a huge transformation of the, of the asset class. And, and it really stems back to the, the, the end of the sort of um, the related party transaction being a kind of cardinal sin, which um, is something that uh, the, in the past, you, you know, you just couldn't get over that really, or it was extremely difficult to. Whereas I think with investors, you know, by that I mean you know, it's selling a part, uh, uh, an investment from one vehicle you control to another, so a related party deal. Um, and through chipping, you know, through various GPs doing things in a way that, you know, where they were able to manage that that perceived conflict, um, 
in a way that um, you know was acceptable to investors. That has become somewhat standardized market technology in terms of how to do that. Um, and that has suddenly opened up a whole wealth of opportunities that go beyond what the secondary market used to be known for, which was LP selling used interests to somebody else, often at a discount. Uh, you know, it's now become uh, a market where you know, GPs can utilize it to achieve a number of things. Um, you know, one of them is, uh, you know, the people always said, well, the joke about this asset class was, oh, you say it's a 10-year fund commitment, but actually it lasts for 15 years. Well, now it doesn't because after 10 years, you can execute a transaction which sells the assets to, uh, you know, to, to a new fund that you manage. Um, and, uh, and in a way, that's also, I think, had a bit of an impact on the sort of long-term fund sort of, you know, there was a, there was a trend towards mm-hmm. that, which never, never got huge traction. And I think in a way, the continuation fund has sort of addressed that same desire for GPs to hold assets for a long time, but in a different way and, and in a way that allows some LPs to get off the bus if they want and others the to option, stay the optionality, right? They can, yeah, they, so they can stay involved for longer or they can just go out. Exactly. So I think it's great technology that's that's evolved and developed in that respect. It's not perfect, but it's uh, it's it's a great innovation of the industry that that that's, 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 that I think is has worked. Um, and then on the other hand, you know what we're seeing more and more of is sort of in, in a way taking that to an, the next level, which is GPs um, taking single assets that they are particularly uh, enamoured with and executing a, a transaction where the sort of price setting element is set by the secondary market and um, and continuing to maintain ownership of those assets. Uh, and again, all of this needs to be carefully managed from a conflict management perspective. And I think that's extremely important. But assume if we take that as assumption as, 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 as read and, and that people execute these in the right way, um, and I do think it's becoming more standardized how that's done. You can imagine for a GP, the, 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 it's, it's very compelling to sell rather than selling your best asset to one of your competitors or somebody up the chain and watching them triple their money on it. Um, you know, it's a very compelling um, uh, argument for them to say, well, why don't, if you can execute a transaction where you keep ownership of that asset, um, give an exit to your LPs, give the, maybe those investors a chance to reinvest in the transaction so they're happy because they get co-invest um, and, and ride that next wave of the value creation story yourself. I think it's a very... Um, very compelling market development um, can also help smaller GPs add AUM, um, whereas previously maybe they they, they, they they couldn't because their fund sizes were a certain size and that may have made their team members susceptible to getting picked off by bigger funds and things. So, so I think that there's lots of interesting elements and, and as long as, and I would expect that part of the market to, because the driver is quite strong, I'd expect the market to continue to expand quite significantly. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's it's nearly time to wrap up, Adam, but uh, quickly before you go, uh, where is Reed heading next? Um, and where do you see the firm in 10 years time? Still still independent, doing consolidation of your own, perhaps uh, going in all the different different strategies? What's uh, what's what's in the in the future for Reed? Yeah, I think I've definitely concluded that I'm not going to be somebody who's best working for someone else. So it's very hard to imagine being anything other than independent. Um but who knows? Uh, the um, uh, you know the business has grown. We're eighty five people today. You know, we, we have offices in London, New York. Um, you know, I think we're yeah you know, we have we continue to have a, a, a sort of strong growth trajectory. But 
but but I think it's very important that we um, you know our attitude is we, we want to be the best we don't want to be um, you know, necessarily the biggest um, there are some benefits that come with scale but there are also some, some diseconomies of scale you can't just add more funds under your belt in this business because if you do that your the quality of service goes down so the uh, yeah I think for us yeah we want to make sure that we maintain that outstanding client service and respond to our clients if things are you know, less than optimal um, first and then kind of grow second. But at the same time, we do see some big opportunities in tangential areas, which we see as kind of being underbanked, if you like, from an advisory perspective. It's worth remembering that the placement industry is quite young, um, really, because private equity is really quite young in many ways, in ter- certainly in terms of the scale you see today. And so we see new areas. Um, yeah, we've talked about secondaries. We see that's a big growth area. Um, we launched an impact business. That's growing. Um, we're looking at, um, we do quite a bit in credit and we might launch a dedicated business there. Um, and then there are other asset classes that we would consider. And I think the story for us of the next 10 years isn't going to be, um, isn't necessarily going to, well, won't be just taking on twice as many private equity funds. It'll be growing, but growing into some of these adjacencies, much like a GP would grow um, into other areas where we see big opportunity, um, where our brand of advisory led um, fundraising services, you know, can you know, is needed and 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 and, and can be successful um, in those markets. And and we do think that's all against the backdrop of a really strong tailwind towards private. Um, so we think that there is quite a lot of opportunity opportunity there. But the thing that drives us most is being you know the number one in terms of service delivery in the market, and we won't sacrifice anything for that. Exciting stuff. Um, Adam, thank you very much for coming on the podcast this week. That was great as usual. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Greg. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode. Uh, Remember, if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. See you on the next one.